Welcome to the podcast, Alwyn. I'm really happy to have you on this one. Hello, good to be here. So you're a historian in modern British history. It'd be great to hear a little bit about your background and maybe a bit about what differentiates you from some of the other historians on modern British history out there. I write books mostly. I also lecture at the University of Chichester, but I see myself primarily as a writer. And I tend, I think, probably to give more focus to popular culture than other modern historians do. I take it more seriously. It's increasing, though, isn't it? There's a, there's a growing trend in history is to look at the, the cultural aspects. But I do specialise in trash pop music and TV sitcoms. That was one of the standouts of reading some of your books. So I started reading your one on the 90s and having that contrast between the high politics and the low culture of lad culture, all of that, Hmm. I found really interesting. It reminded me a little bit of Dominic Sandbrook does a little bit of that stuff as well, combining cultural Hmm. investigations with the politics. I guess the other thing is, although I do write about politics, I do so from the point of view of a consumer. I'm not a journalist. I never have been. I'm not a Whitehall or a Westminster insider. I consume politics through the TV, through newspapers, nowadays through the internet, in the same way that everybody else does. I'm trying to give the view of how this stuff is received. I'm more interested in that than in the process by which policy is formulated. I'm interested in where the public experience it. And I think we're definitely going to get into that with this one today. So for this episode, we're talking about the 1980s. I wanted to start with thinking about where the mood and the general thrust of the 1980s came from. So often the beliefs of one period is a reaction against that of the previous. So you might think of something like the 1960s and the colour and consumerism of that period being a reaction to the drabness of austerity Britain. If the 1980s was reacting against something in the past, what do you think it would be? I guess primarily it's the feeling that Britain is in terminal decline, which seemed to have gripped the nation fairly heavily in the 1970s, as the reality of the end of empire becomes absorbed into the popular consciousness this feeling that Britain's best days are behind it. Margaret Thatcher, who rather conveniently spans the entire decade of the 1980s as Prime Minister with a few months at either end, is very clear that that, that she believes that the great days can be reclaimed. And I think that's what she's trying to do. The, the problem, I guess, is, is obviously decades don't fall conveniently in terms of politics or culture or anything else, according to the calendar. The first bit of the 1980s feels like the 1970s writ large. I mean, it's worse. 1980s is the worst year for the economy since the war, at least. I mean, absolutely dreadful year. 1980, GDP collapses by 4%. Unemployment goes up by nearly a million in that one year. Inflation is running at 18%. Company profits are down. Manufacturing output is down massively. It is a really bad recession, and that's the beginning of the 1980s. It feels like it's the 1970s continued. I don't think you really feel properly the 1980s until, I don't know, it's arguable. These things, obviously, they creep up on one. But by the end of 1984, you can see there's a definite new mood. December 1984 is the 
British Telecom is privatised. It's the first of the really big privatisations. There have been others. I mean, the previous year, Associated British Ports was privatised. But nobody talked about it. Nobody said, have you got any shares in Associated British Ports? Whereas Telecom shares became part of that popular capitalism Margaret Thatcher had been pursuing. And that's that's December 1984. The miners' strike is clearly finished and defeated. Organised labour has, has ended its... Uh, it's his period of influence. As I said, it takes a while for the 1980s to kick in. I think by the middle of it, we're very definitely in a different country. I'll put another argument to you to see how you respond to it. Could it be argued that actually the end of the 70s was the moment that the Labour Party rejected the post-war consensus where you had, I think it was James Callaghan himself saying the model that we had before about putting more money into the economy, trying to have full employment, simply doesn't work. Could that be seen as the end of the 70s? It it, it certainly um, spells the death knell for that post-war consensus that's based on Keynesian economics. So, so the, the speech in 1976 to the, uh, the Labour conference at the height of the um, the crisis that led us to apply to the International Monetary Fund for a, a, an overdraft facility, effectively. And yeah, Callaghan saying, you cannot spend your way out of recession, which of course was entirely the point of Keynesian economics. You could spend your way out of recession. That's how you got out of recession. So yes, I mean, he in that speech, in that moment, he repositioned British politics away from unemployment as the key indicator towards inflation. As the key indicator, and that's that's the certainly paves the way for for what is to come. Yeah, if that was the old model that the British economy was run on, what was the new Thatcherite, if we want to use that word, economic model? Um, I, th- I think we can use the word Thatcherite. It's just it's it's not necessarily synonymous with Thatcher. I think mm. is, is the issue. Margaret Thatcher herself. I mean, she starts by not being interested in economics, frankly. I mean, she, she she's really not concerned about it. She doesn't trust economists. Um, her instincts are those that she learnt at her father's knee in Grantham. It's 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 the old traditional virtues of self-reliance, of self-help, never a lender or a borrower be, save up for a rainy day, all, all of that stuff, the, 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 the kind of good old um, 19th century homilies that's very much where Thatcher is. She is persuaded that monetarism is the way forward. Um, Keith Joseph, who is very much a, a economic guru who does think about economics, um, is persuaded by this new concept of monetarism that inflation is the key target. And within that, inflation is caused by um, a surplus of money that money is effectively a commodity. And if there's too much of it, then its price falls. And and that's what inflation, I mean, in, in the simplistic terms that I understand these things. Um, I don't know that Thatcher really cared a great deal about monetarism. I think she quite liked the simplicity of the formula at the centre of it. Excess money equals inflation. That's it. I, I think she buys into that. But even Keith Joseph... I, even uh, what 1976, I think it was, he made a speech which was titled "Monetarism is not enough." 
he saw the big state as being the enemy. So although he he does accept monetarism, that's not the totality of Keith Joseph's thinking. And the emphasis on the state is the bit that Thatcher is attracted to. She's keen to to, to take away as much power as possible from the state and in her terms, give it to the people. Power to the people she uses as a slogan, rather cheekily uh, appropriating the uh, the messages of the late 1960s liberals. Um, but it's about removing the state from the economic sphere as much as it is possible to do so. And what about the argument that Margaret Thatcher wasn't actually a conservative, but was a 19th century liberal? Do you buy that? Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. We mentioned earlier that idea of breaking the post-war consensus. We are now so far away from that consensus that I think we can look at it as that was the blip. It wasn't that Margaret Thatcher broke it or that James Callaghan started to break it. It's, that was an interrupted little period of British history. What Thatcher was arguing, the policy she's putting forward, the idea that these big companies should be in private ownership rather than state ownership, that's made sense for virtually the whole of British history since the Industrial Revolution. It's only only for a couple of decades in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s when that's not the norm. She's reverting to an earlier standard, I think. And your books, we've mentioned, talk a lot about culture, the arts, and talk about how they're often a reflection of high politics or even preempt uh, high politics. What in the world of culture and arts became symbols of that Thatcherite, if we want to use that word, economy? What would you point to that uh, gives some flavour to the political analysis? Um, well, I mentioned Band-Aid earlier. I think Band-Aid and Live Aid are very Thatcherite in their uh, their inclinations because Thatcherism, if it is 19th century liberalism, comes with a 19th century sense of obligation to charity. Um, and and that fitted in perfectly well. We are a rich country. It is right that we should give money to charity to less fortunate parts of the world. This is this is not inimicable to Thatcher whatsoever. Um, and it's noticeable in 1976, I think it was Norman Tebbit, the the hard man of Thatcherism, the man who was more Thatcherite than Thatcher, um, appeared at the uh, the Brit Awards, presenting awards to. Um, Elton John and to Wan for opening up new markets in the Soviet Union and China, respectively. And in his speech, he says he knows nothing about pop music, but wasn't Live Aid absolutely wonderful. There is a sense where the culture has moved at that point. But there's also, I mean, the, the, there's a very, very strong current of anti-Thatcherism that runs right the way through 90s, 1980s culture as well. It just doesn't tend to be necessarily the biggest selling stuff. Um, Channel 4, which was, of course, set up by the Thatcher government uh, and intended to be run on Thatcherite lines, becomes a, a, a vehicle for protest. But it's Channel 4. You know, it's not it's, it's not ITV or BBC One. The, 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 the oppositional culture tends to be ghettoised into uh, Channel 4, BBC Two, there's a strand of pop music that resists, but it's nowhere near the sales of the, uh, the, the the big groups. And what about alternative comedy? I know that's a, an area of interest to you. That started to become fledgling and, and growing in, in the in the 1980s. Is that right? 
It, it coincides almost exactly with the rise of Margaret Thatcher herself. The uh, the Comedy Store, which is the first comedy club in Britain since the early 60s, opens the same month that Thatcher was elected in 1979. Um, there was also uh, not the Nine O'Clock News, which was a genuinely popular TV show. That was supposed to have been starting broadcasting in the spring of 1979 and was delayed because of the election. So it didn't start until later. But it, but that's the other strand that feeds into alternative comedy is this rebirth of the Oxbridge comedy tradition that goes back to Peter Cook and um, the, the Monty Python goodies kind of era. Um, that's reborn in, in the 1980s, forms a new alliance with these comedy clubs that are emerging. And yeah, they take a very definite... They, they, Alternative comedy is defined almost entirely by its opposition to Margaret Thatcher it's, and its commitment to a political agenda, even when it's not being overtly political. Some of it is just downright silly. But the point is that it's not supposed to be racist, sexist, homophobic. The great shibboleths had, had, had emerged. That These are the things that um, we must now avoid. Did it mainly reject the social conservatism of Thatcherism, or was there a rejection in alternative comedy of the free market economics, or was that less prominent because maybe economics uh, is just less engaging sometimes for for, for, for comedy? Less funny. Yeah. Um, there's, not many, yeah. <laughs> there's not many jokes in Milton Friedman. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is. It's, it's about the social side of it. Because to a large extent, the, the, uh, the economic side of comedy as with pop music, is incredibly capitalist. And that was the point with Channel 4. Because we have so few TV channels, There is not. it was considered there was not sufficient competition. So the idea of Channel 4 and the structure of it was that Channel 4 did not make its own programmes. It was allowed to commission programmes from independent production companies. And that was supposed to introduce some element of competition and free market because there would be different production companies competing with each other, even if the outlet was a single entity. And the production companies that spring up tend to be ones that are rooted in comedy. I mean, there's Hattrick Productions, for example. These independent production companies, it was comedians who really led the way on that. Um, And Channel 4 love it because uh, it doesn't have a very big budget. And one person standing in front of a microphone is a hell of a lot cheaper than making a period drama. So, you know, they put on a lot of stand-up comedy and it it, it gives a lifeline to that uh, emerging art form. But it is essentially comedy is, is uh, and it's a very competitive business. It is based around selling tickets and 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 getting viewers on TV. It is it is a free market form. In the same way that you can see that. The punk revolution of 1977 and the emphasis on independent record labels set up. You can release this record yourself. You don't need a major company to do it. That's a very Thatcherite concept as well. There's entrepreneurial activity there. Um, so, it, yeah, it's it, it, the economics I never really got to grips with. It's interesting. I didn't know that that government created Channel 4 and then felt that it, it wasn't reflecting their values. Did they make any attempt to reclaim Channel 4 and remould it to their will no they didn't as, as far as i'm aware no they didn't it was it was it went wrong they it, it, it it's concept of it was supposed to be a minority channel but they didn't understand that minorities was now a political term um 
and it meant black people and gay people and that wasn't that wasn't their concept of minorities but once it's established that I, I mean, they don't they don't really interfere with it and some of that is because i don't think the thatcher government really took culture seriously enough to worry about um and i obviously as a cultural historian i think that's mistaken but i i i, I I don't think they saw it as, as being in the front right, front rank of uh, of issues to be tackled. And I suppose you're constrained by your own principles because if you really think, well, we let the market do what it wants to do, then if there is a big market for alternative yes. comedy or 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 Channel Four's uh, less pro Thatcherite sentiments, then you you have to go with it, don't you? <laughs> Indeed, yes. You've you made a big point about uh, choice being important to uh uh to the people of britain well they've chosen some of them have chosen to go in this direction that you don't approve of but that's in the nature of choice and free will and you mentioned band-aid was thatcher a fan of band-aid i haven't really heard about her re- relationship t- to it i know oh, yes. she talked about kind of victorian philanthropy and and that kind of thing so maybe did she see it as a as a follow-on from that the modern yeah. version of that very much, very much so. She met she met Bob Geldof, who is the the founder of Band Aid and Live Aid. Um, she met him to congratulate him. She thought he was doing very good work. I mean, she, she was a woman who believed very passionately in charity, and this was charity. It was not political. She could get on board with it. By contrast, I mean the, the Live Aid concert was celebrated um, by by the government. The uh, the Nelson Mandela birthday concert at Wembley later in the decade was not celebrated because that was seen as being political. It's hard to imagine Margaret Thatcher uh, meeting Bob Geldof. Was it? Was there an element of cringe to that, as sometimes there is with politicians um, meeting celebrities? He he took the opportunity to uh, to tell her off um, <laughs> and to lecture her on uh, how the uh, the European Community, as it then was, uh, should be doing more. We had we had issues with food surpluses at this stage, um, and and Bob Geldof believed that uh, the European Community could be doing much more to help with the famine in Ethiopia, which is what the the whole Band Aid Live Aid project was about. Makes sense, I suppose. You have to, don't you? If you're uh, a rebellious musician, you, you have yeah, to, I mean, at least at, at some point, tell, yeah. give them a telling off. <laughs> Geldof came out of it perfectly well. Um, and I think Thatcher did. In your book, which is called Rejoice, Rejoice, you say that the conflicting interests of moral and economic liberalism, which is something we've touched on a little bit already, within the Thatcherite coalition would remain throughout the decade. Could you unpack what that conflict is a little bit? I, I, I think it goes back to that question of choice. Um, Thatcher believes that consumers should have choice um but she is also uh, very rooted in a 19th century morality that um that thinks that there is such a thing as right and wrong and the problem is if you give people too much choice they might choose the wrong thing to do i i tend to see it in terms of two big figures who are really important to margaret thatcher one is rupert murdoch who is acquiring new titles. Um, He he buys the Times and the Sunday Times in the early years of Margaret Thatcher's period in office and represents 
naked capitalism, um, anti-union capitalism, the stuff that she agrees with. And he supports her very uh, vociferously. All his newspapers are pro-Margaret Thatcher. And so you have that element of the free market. And then on the other side, you have the influence of Mary Whitehouse, the great moral campaigner of the 1960s and 70s, who wishes to turn the clock back and, and, and particularly in terms of broadcasting, thinks that the BBC's responsibility is to promote Christian values. Mary Whitehouse has a meeting with Margaret Thatcher when Thatcher is still the leader of the opposition. And Mary Whitehouse comes out of it convinced that she has met a soulmate and that Margaret Thatcher, it, she argues later on, towards the end of Mary Whitehouse's life in the in the 1990s, she says that Margaret Thatcher was the, the one prime minister during her entire period of campaigning who was on side. And that, though those two strands um, don't necessarily sit comfortably with each other. And at the end of the 1980s, when Rupert Murdoch starts moving into satellite television with Sky TV, that's when you really see the conflict becoming clear. Because as far as Murdoch's concerned, there should be no regulation of television. And this is a new form of TV. If there's going to be regulation, it's going to have to be written from scratch. And he believes that there should not be any state regulation of what he is allowed to broadcast. But the White House tendency within Thatcherism obviously believes that it is really, really important there should be regulation, because otherwise they fear it, it won't go into pornography um, as the great symbol of, of where things have gone wrong. And from Murdoch's perspective, yeah, a bit of soft pornography wouldn't have gone amiss. It would have dri driven up uh, sales of, of Sky satellite dishes very comfortably. And so those two things kind of conflict. And, and, and Murdoch says so because there is regulation introduced for satellite TV. And Murdoch says, but this is wrong. Thatcher believes in people having free choice. Why don't they have the choice to watch what they want to watch? And so there's those two separate tendencies of the free market and a, a slightly authoritarian imposition of moral values that Thatcher has within herself, but they, they are in conflict. It seems to me the social conservatism lost out definitely over the long term, but but probably over even the shorter term as well to to that economic liberalism. To what extent do you agree with that, firstly? And then I suppose as a follow on, do you think Thatcher, was it about paying lip service to that social conservatism or, or do you think she really felt that she she failed to deliver on that and and actually would have wanted to have done more more there? Yeah, I think um, her most revealing comment, I think, was uh, when she said that economics is only the method; the object is to change the soul. And that was that was said. At, I think it was nineteen eighty one. At the absolute depths of her unpopularity, she was the most hated prime minister since polling began, and she still has this extraordinary ambition that she wishes to change the soul of the nation. I mean, it is it's admirable, and it's in, in its. Uh, expectations of what she can achieve but i think that is genuine but the problem is, is she got so hung up on the uh, the the economics even though she's not really interested but the economic concerns that that's the primary job of a government and she lost sight i think of 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 the moral campaigning and and most of what she attempted to do failed um 
you know she she does genuinely believe it it is really important to her but she doesn't find a way of of the state doing anything about it the other example that sprung to my mind when you were, you were speaking of where the conflict lies is the culture in the city so financial traders uh, mm. making loads of money and then sort of strewning the street of london you know champagne bottle in hand that was an image that was completely against thatcher's instincts wasn't it yes i think so but again as you said it's a conflict because um the the arrival of non-establishment people into the city of london where it doesn't matter if you've got the the right school tie and the right regimental tie the sweeping away of the old gentleman's club element of it that's very much what she does approve of but not necessarily the amount of coke that was being snorted by the end of the decade and the the, yeah, the irresponsibility of it in a, a very specific sense of no sense of responsibility towards society i don't like the term neoliberalism because it, it seems to me a bit vague but if if it if it is a thing i think it's thatcher with thatcherism without the moral dimension and without the moral compass and thatcher does have a very strong moral compass she is a very moral woman and she unleashes forces that don't have the same shared values as her and i suppose as a politician it's that you can't always control your legacy with with something like channel 4 or, or the the culture in the mm. city once you unleash something yeah you it's interesting to see where where unintended consequences will always get you. Mm. you. You suggest that the British public never fully bought into that culture of private interest, free enterprise that Thatcher was trying to instill. Could you ex- expand on that? It's a difficult one to measure, isn't it? It's it's. Um, you can ask people, the British Social Attitude Surveys and various other surveys ask people about uh, their values and, and how that's expressed. And people will always say they want to spend more money on um, the health service and education, and then they will go into the voting and into the uh, voting booths and, and and cast their vote for somebody who believes the opposite. So, you, you people will say that they believe things and don't necessarily live it out. So it's, it's a difficult thing to measure, but I, I think I would I would argue from cultural um, trends the the biggest sitcom on television um for this period is only fools and horses which is rooted entirely in the sense of community and i know um del del trotter is presents himself as a yuppie and it's a caricature and it's a it's a parody of but more important than that is the family structure around it and the the, the social structure around it it is still rooted in this idea of of a shared community the biggest program of all in the in this period is is uh, by the end of the decade is EastEnders, which again is is based around the the concept of a shared community. Um, however melodramatic it gets, it is still I mean, entirely implausible that there is a, a square in the East End of London where property prices haven't forced out all the uh, all the people who've lived there for generations. But it is. Culturally, people are hanging on to the idea of community and society. And Margaret Thatcher's out-of-context quote, there is no such thing as society, puts her on the other side in the pub- in the public mind. And what about 
aristocracy and tradition, did people hang on to to that culturally? Because I'm thinking of the love still of drama set in country estates, which don't feel Thatcherite in in their mould. Was was there still a love there? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it is um, the 1980s sees the, the the rise of heritage drama rather splendidly in in films, but also on TV. I mean, you know, Brideshead revisited and and um, the Five Pavilions and and Jewel in the Crown and so on on TV. Chariots of Fire on the big screen. The, Within all of those, though, there is still a Thatcherite tendency. I think. I mean, Chariots of Fire is this massive symbol of the of, of one the of British cinema. I mean, partly it's such a big symbol because there's so little competition in British cinema at the time. But but it's about outsiders. It's about a Jewish athlete, and it's about um, a Christian athlete struggling. In in his case, to to run on a Sunday, it, it's there. There is a moral dimension to it that uh, that still feels as if it's Thatcherite, and the sense of these outsiders trying to fight an establishment is very much how Margaret Thatcher saw herself. The one that came to mind as well, um, which I think came out a bit after the eighties, but was the film Billy Elliot, which, on the one hand, you might see as a rejection of. Thatcher because she's the enemy there but mm-hmm. on the other it's a story about aspiration it's about someone who has talent and then pursues that and then eventually I think the end of the film he's moved to London uh, which is in the 80s became more and more of a financial centre so is that another one where even in spite of itself c- culture that's trying to be anti-Thatcherite Sort of leans towards to, towards it. You can't escape it in a way. Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably right. There, it, there is obviously it goes back to that idea of community and a community under siege because it's set during the miners' strike. Um, but yeah, it is. It's it's about a meritocracy. This kid has talent, and therefore uh, the establishment should should allow him access. Mm-hmm. The. Uh, historian Dominic Sandbrook suggests that the economic changes of Thatcherism would have happened anyway without her. Do you buy that? Um, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, I mean, we're into alternate history. Um, okay, for it not to have happened, I guess we have to posit um, that Margaret Thatcher loses the 1979 election. Uh, the Labour Party remains in government. James Callaghan remains Prime Minister. At that stage, Margaret Thatcher would have been unceremoniously dumped as leader of the Conservative Party. There was a lot of people in the party did not trust her anyway. She's a woman, for God's sake. Um, she certainly didn't go to the right school. She would have been thrown out if she'd lost that election and replaced by... William Whitelaw, I guess, would have been the obvious successor, who would have been a much more emollient figure, um, much less concerned with the idea of breaking that post-war consensus. And Callaghan, although he'd made that speech and it it said we are now focused on, 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 on inflation rather than unemployment, he wouldn't have held to it in any to anywhere near the same level that Thatcher did. In Britain, there was also a problem of um, a huge demographic bulge of this this 
huge spike in the birth rate in the early 1960s. These were people who were now leaving university, leaving college, leaving school, entering into the workforce by 1979-1980. Those There would have been a massive rise in unemployment because of that. There would have been a recession because of the oil price rise. Compounding that, North Sea oil was just starting to come on stream. So therefore, sterling was now seen in the international money markets as an oil currency. And therefore, the, the value of sterling was high, which obviously makes exports more difficult. So there's a whole load of economic problems that would have happened anyway. That recession would have happened if James Callaghan had been prime minister. All of that would have happened on his watch. He would not have responded in the same way as Thatcher. He would have, but he would have fallen from power. I mean, undoubtedly, he would then have lost the next election, at which stage William Whitelaw would become prime minister. I don't think William Whitelaw would have relentlessly pursued um, the idea of privatisation in the same way. Anti-union legislation would have been less intense. It would have been different. Maybe by the 90s, it would have changed. I mean, because the other big international thing that happens at the end of Thatcher's time is the collapse of communism, which then allows capitalism in the West to to rise and become more self-confident because it doesn't have this polar um a pole of attraction for other people there's no there is no alternative to use the great thatcher slogan by the 90s that was true in the early 80s it was not true there was an alternative so maybe yeah i don't know maybe those economic changes would have happened but i think it would have taken at least a decade longer than it did and the unions was their power always going to be heavily curtailed? Was it a case of just when that struck rather than whether it would, do you think? Yes, I think I, the, the, the would have been, there would have been cuts to that, to the, uh, essentially the legal indemnities enjoyed by trade unions. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the Labour Party had tried to do so back in the late 60s with in place of strife um, they knew then. Barbara Carson, who was a very great politician, knew that there was a problem, and she understood that the the best solution to this would be a Labour government that was friendly towards the trade unions, coming to a, a deal that would that they could live with. Um, they chose not to live with it and ended up with Margaret Thatcher's version of union reform instead. There would have been union reform. Um, not necessary to the same extent. And I don't, I mean, the other thing with the unions is the absolute peak of union membership was 1979. It's very nearly 50% of the workforce was unionized and it's, it's been falling ever since. Would that have fallen even without Thatcher? I suspect it probably would. Is, was it to do the, the fall in unions with a growth of individualism and I'm thinking of the aspirational classes so that move from maybe being in towns and cities to the to the suburbs having your own drive your own car all of that was how does that come in into the into the 80s and was there a, a culture around that yeah I, I, I think so the the appeal of Thatcher 
to a large extent was that she was seen as being the voice of the suburbs. She was just an ordinary suburban woman. I mean, not quite because she's married to a millionaire, which which does kind of help. Um, but she represents, as I say, it's, it's a populist thing. Of, of there is an establishment that that is, and, and if the country is going wrong, then it's the establishment is clearly responsible and needs to be changed. And people by the the mid late seventies were seeing trade unions as part of the establishment. They were part of the problem that had to be overcome. I think that that was there. And as you say, there's a certain uh, psychological shift that says, you know, um, I'm interested in looking after my my own concerns. The collective is no longer serving me. So turning to post the 1980s, what are some of the big ways that the 1980s are still present with us today? In economic terms, the continuation of Thatcher's thinking. Inflation is still the enemy, not unemployment. And we we have come to live with very high levels of unemployment. Um, Even now, they are higher than we would have accepted. I think probably the biggest shift of all is the shift from income tax to indirect tax. And nobody has attempted to change that. Um, the or no, there was the one attempt in 1992. The Labour Party went into the election saying that um, for those who are earning above average wages, there will be an increase in taxation in income tax, and it was so th- so thoroughly rejected that they abandoned the idea. And nobody is talking about going back to the old rates of taxation. And it, it, both the major parties compete to say we wish to cut income tax. But Thatcher is not anti-tax. She's just anti-income tax. Um, And everything is then loaded onto indirect taxes and sales taxes, particularly VAT, obviously, which was, what, 8% when Thatcher came into power. She nearly doubled it to 15% and are now running at 20%. That that has just become so embedded, that shift in, in how we take tax. What are some Um, of the indirect taxes? I'm a bit less familiar with with what they would be well it's 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 the uh all the, all the duties on on tobacco and alcohol and petrol um in addition to vat which is the biggest of all of them um there are shifts that you can make in terms of of um capital gains tax um there's the old the old idea of taxation is that income tax is the main thing and still remains so it is still the biggest of them and so, therefore, that's where you load things because that is seen as being um, a progressive tax. You you pay it if you can afford to. Does that you, flip then? Income tax was seen as a negative because it's a tax on aspiration. Yes, and it reduces consumer choice. Mm. You have more of your money to to decide where you wish to spend it. Every way you wish to spend it, we're going to tax you on it. But you do at least have the choice of these things. So those that 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 has become, as I say, absolutely embedded in political thinking. Nobody is challenging that. The privatization of state-owned industries remains. I mean, people talk about bringing some some aspects of it back into state ownership. Um, I, I mean, there, I think there is popular support for the idea of the railways, water, maybe gas and electricity. 
I don't think anybody's seriously suggesting that the state should be running our telecommunications anymore. Um, but some of those may change, but they haven't done. It's, it's noticeable that, that this has not happened. Um, but, but it's also noticeable, isn't it, that your, your point that the, the public never quite fully brought into the idea of complete free markets, private enterprise, when something does go wrong with one of those big enterprises, um, rail, BT, water, it is still seen that there's something that the government should do. There's some collective yeah. societal responsibility, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's true. They are in a different category to, um, I don't know, Marks and Spencers having bad results or whatever, or prices going up in, in Sainsbury's. That That's not considered to be the government's responsibility. But you're right, when it's, when it's the big utilities, that is seen as being somehow the government still has a responsibility, even if we don't own it. What about John Major? Do you think he did carry the torch of Thatcherism or was there a shift? Um, there is a shift, but there always is. I mean, it goes back to your point about um, one period being a re rejection of an earlier, of the, of the previous period. Um, no, you get that with prime ministers. Um, a noisy prime minister is followed by a quiet one. Um, and John Major was very much the quiet man. Um, and then there's the conflict over Europe, which is a whole separate issue um, where Thatcher comes into direct uh, conflict with him. But those things remain. I, I Probably the single most positive thing that Thatcher ever did was to talk about the environment. She's the first major world leader to really talk about climate change as a, as, as, as a serious problem. And she does so because um, she is the only, the only prime minister we've ever had who has a science degree. She does actually know how to read scientific reports in a way that um, PPE graduates, bless them, don't always. She was very serious about it. She, to some extent, she rode back in in the last years of her life of her of her public life but when she was in office she was the one who who, who did make an issue of it and and in that, that made, was was there a tension even then that there is now between if you believe fully in free mark the free market then what role does a state have to curtail environmental damage was that a concern for her I don't think it was because I think she saw the environmental damage as being the crucial issue. Um, and it started with um, uh, the, the the hole in the ozone layer, which was the big story of the late late 80s, and largely because of Margaret Thatcher, it was a big story. She had had reports. Margaret Thatcher was incredibly loyal to the people that she liked and that she approved of. And in the build-up to the Falklands War, the British Antarctic Survey were very helpful in providing information about the terrain and the conditions in the South Atlantic. So she always had a great deal of respect for the British Antarctic Survey thereafter. They they had no problems with their funding. And they were the ones who first discovered the or made public the idea that there was a hole in the ozone layer that was potentially catastrophic to the uh, to the environment. And because it was them who were saying so, and because she could read scientific reports, she took it very seriously. And she saw it as being an issue that meant this is what government was for. It's not that 
because she didn't believe that the state shouldn't exist. She was a believer in the state and in government. It's just there were jobs that it was supposed to do. Um, and one of those was protecting the environment. Um, and, and, and you know, defense is another. There are things that it should be doing. I, I have a suspicion that this may yet be regarded as her greatest contribution to Britain is uh, the person who took uh, environmental concerns seriously. Which is interesting because probably no one at the time would have seen that as the most visible element of Thatcher and Thatcherism. No. And I suppose it's a reflection of, we've said sometimes what you want to be your legacy is is twisted in a way that that wasn't what you intended, whether it's the mm-hmm. sort of reader's good culture. And then actually things that you might not have expected to be your your biggest legacy actually does become important. Yeah, no, things things can look very different. So we're coming towards the end. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to to pick up? Anything we missed? Um, I guess in focusing on Thatcher, we maybe neglect slightly the other great figure of the 1980s in British politics, who is Ken Livingstone, um, whose time at the GLC, which only lasted for a few years, is almost as influential in shaping Britain because he's the one who who that that whole business of uh, minorities now being a political category. It's Livingston who who popularizes the idea that uh, that politics needs to incorporate issues of of uh, of civil black civil rights of of women's uh, the women's movement of gay rights and so on. That whole uh, social liberalism is really very much uh, part of the legacy of the 1980s that's still very powerful now. And so to some extent, I think Thatcher wins the economic argument and Ken Livingston wins the social argument. And would you trace the line from Ken Livingston to Jeremy Corbyn, or is that pushing it too far? No, no, very, very closely associated. They were from the outset. They, they, They worked together. Um, Ken Livingston's uh, bid to become the leader of the GLC was uh, largely shaped by Jeremy Corbyn, who was working on that campaign. Um, they are very much part of the uh, the same the same culture. Fantastic. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and we'd be very happy to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. I'm going to be reading your book on the 1990s. Uh, So thanks so much again, Alwyn, for joining us. I also want to take a quick moment to say thank you to those listening as well. I've got a few more interviews that I'm preparing and we'll line up episodes for those. So I really hope you tune in uh, next time for some more modern British political history. Thanks so much.